Hey folks, welcome back to On The Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I'm joined once again by Jared Wickland and Matt O'Connor. You, uh, you'll recognize both of these voices from our Food Plot Podcast just a few weeks ago. Um, and we are, um, we're going to talk about another habitat component that's critical for our favorite uh our favorite species of game birds, pheasants and quail, but it connects to so many other things uh, we, we talk about on the show. The web of life, and it all starts with, well, you can argue it all starts with insects, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about pollinators and pollinator habitat. Gentlemen, welcome to On the Wing Podcast. Good morning. Good morning, fellas. Good to be here. Good to have you again, Matt. Thanks for making the trip up from Iowa. Let's start at the beginning. Um, and, and I teased pollinators and insects, and that's that's only a portion of it. Um, <laughs> but let, let's start from a biological perspective. Uh, what is pollinator habitat, and why are we talking pollinators on a Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever podcast? Yeah, how did bugs get so far up on our to-do list? That's what I tell people. <laughs> I, I think that uh, the important thing to realize is that there's – as as a nation, as uh, we've we've kind of overlooked this whole issue with native insects, native pollinators, and of course the butterflies, which is kind of a bigger draw, and more people look that way when they talk about that. But just how much trouble we were in, and and also the importance of them. Those native insects that pollinate it to the agricultural system is just immensely important. You know, to the point where you know you'll see in the summertime, um, you know, semis full of honeybees heading to California from. North Dakota for other places in the Midwest, you'd think that's just not something that you'd think would happen. But mm-hmm. that's the, how critical it is out there when it comes to native insects. So pollinators was one of the things, that, one of the answers to that. And then also just taking time to learn about the monarch butterfly. I mean, mm-hmm. just an incredible species. You think this, this goofy little bug that's about two grams does the kind of moving and and um migration that they go through and you know never really make it they go away and then produce new young and go some more it's it's absolutely incredible in fact when we first started into this probably eight years ago you know i i got into it and hell i even had a jar with the you know i found some eggs and watched them and got the young larvae and and fed them and i, yeah, I was like a you know i was like a fifth grader doing <laughs> yeah. my science project but it was it was cool. It was a big day. I was gone, and it was a big day when that thing came out of its chrysalis, and, you know, the whole family was making sure that the little bugger <laughs> got out and was okay, you know. I, I, I think, you know, it's it's interesting, too, in, in talking just butterflies specifically since we're on the topic is, you know, you watch you watch the monarchs make their migration in the fall, and they're eating all the way down and going down to Mexico and, and different places of the southern U.S. to winter for the year, and, you know, when monarchs come back the following year, you know, a lot of people out there would assume that it's it's just it. Oh, this it, he's back. You know, right. it's the same. I mean, you're like, what is it? Two, three, four generations removed when they're on their way back. Yeah, it's not a duck. No, no, no. They don't. They don't. They don't migrate like waterfall. And then, you know, to that point too is when we're talking about when we're talking about pollinators. You know, monarch butterflies and honeybees are obviously at the at the top of the list um, because of the uh, you know colony collapse and different things that we've seen. But Matt, you can you talk real quickly about you know a pollinator habitat helps out pollinators, and a, a pollinator just isn't just monarch butterflies and honeybees. It's anything that moves pollen 
from one flower to another. So that can be a number of different critters, correct? Right, right. And, a, and a pollinator plot or a pollinator planting is not just a couple, you know, getting some flowers out there. Yep. You've got to, it's very important that you've got year-long or season-long blooming within that pollinator plot. And you've also got the species that sort of complement those flowers so that it, you know, it's, it's somewhat a system mm-hmm. out there. And they, they might be very small, but, you know, the reason that we put grasses in there, even though you'd think, well, grasses aren't that important, they're important as a secondary species to a lot of those insects that we don't even know what they are, yep. but are out there doing their, doing their job. And the other thing is, is that it makes a better climate or a better little system for the flowers and the broadleaves that are, that are out there producing the, produce, producing the pollen, producing the food. So <clears throat> I'm going to dial us back to the beginning again because this is something that we talk about inside this office every single day. And our Pheasants Forever members, Quail Forever members have seen pollinator habitat and pollinator discussions for almost the last decade in our publications on mm-hmm. our website. But for folks that are just tuning into this podcast for the very first time, you know, there there is still like a why are these guys talking about pollinators? So, so just at the very base, you know, let's describe what pollinator habitat looks like and what's the connection to pheasants and quail. I guess the, the bottom line is, for our Pheasants Forever people, is that it's probably the best habitat that we've ever planted out there. And it's not going to cover all the things. You know, mm-hmm. there's no doubt that, you know, a heavy, wet winter storm you know, is not going to, a pollinator plot's not going to hold up as well as maybe, you know, a thick grass of grasses or, or basically wetland, mm-hmm. wetland places. Right, cattail snooze yeah. to overwinter. Of right. Grass but area. boy, throughout the rest of the season, I just see that, that whether it's the insects in there, whether it's the structure of that, that um, pollinator plot or, or whatever the issue is, upland birds love that site, whether mm-hmm. it's to loaf in, whether it's used as brood cover, um, it can be used a lot of different ways, but, you know, the bottom line when it comes to, to, to upland birds, they like the structure mm-hmm. of that pollinator plot. Now, again, uh, remember what its makeup is. Um, we've got early spring blooming flowers out there. We've got flowers that are blooming during the summertime and maybe extend a little bit into the, you know, August, almost September. And then what needs to be out there is the, is the fall fall blooming flowers or the opportunities to, to pick up, um, you know, to pick up energy off of those flowers in the, in the fall. Now, when it comes to butterflies, there's another component, the milkweed. There's a lot of different milkweeds out there. Yeah. It's not, not just common, right? Not just common. There's like, I'd say there's a bunch of different species, but what I like the most, I like common and I like getting swamp milkweed. Some people call it rose milkweed, um, but that's an excellent one to have in those in those mixes and we actually try to shoot for three um, or four I guess I guess th- what else is important by it is that when you look at it in the scheme of a field of of thick grass that might be okay cover mm-hmm. putting that patch of diversity out in there helps that entire area so if there's a 60 acre field of grass and there's 10 acres of pollinator in there that field you know is a lot more improved than just standing alone and what, what a lot of folks um, maybe don't realize is in a pheasant and a quail's diet, right, for the first nine months of their life, maybe not nine months, probably no, actually, five months. You know, right? Biology-wise, biology-wise, quail, young pheasants feed on insects until 
the foxtail matures. Okay. There's actually more protein in that. So that can be August or, or early September. What the problem is is that we don't have the foxtail that we used to have. You know, when, when I was growing up, foxtail was everywhere. It's not as prevalent. So, and the other thing is, is you think of the hen. The hen might still be, um, you know, we sometimes wonder in these different situations whether it's the brood going into that area or the brood following the hen into that mm. area. So either way, they're in there. Um, but uh, I think that, that you know, that, that diversity, whether, whether it's the bugs or whether it's the overhead cover, the feeling that they're, they've got good loafing cover, <clears throat> they want to be in that. They mm. want to be in that bed. So. so I've always thought, you know, of a life cycle of a pheasant, you have nesting cover, um, which is primarily grass, mm-hmm. right? And then you transition it to, quote-unquote, brood cover, which is pollinator habitat, which is a mix of grass and forbs, flowering plants that attract the insects so, so those chicks can eat. Then the other two components, and you touched on it, was winter cover, the cattail sloughs, the shelter belts, and that, um, you know, food food cover that you need um, to get those birds through the duration of the um, uh, hard winter. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, those four components that pretty accurately assess what, what's needed? Loafing cover. Loafing. In fact, a lot of times they spend as much time in that. Now, loafing cover can change by the terrain. You know, if you're, you're out in Kansas and you're hunting some big field, you know, during the midday you're probably heading towards those plum thickets because what birds do is they're loafing there they like something that's open underneath but has overhead cover so they don't have to worry about what's coming from above and underneath it's open enough where they can see and look around now pollinator habitat Mm -hmm. can simulate that because the asters are up Mm -hmm. or the or the or -hmm. the goldenrods up and it's it's giving them that overhead cover and and yet it's open enough where they can move around and they can also see underneath it so that you know, really, those darn birds are, are loafing as much as they are doing anything else during the during mm. the day. So that's another important component. Yeah, that's where I, th- I keep coming back to pollinator slash uh, brood habitat. Say, okay, so it's got loafing cover because it's got that multi-story yeah. um, protection. Yep, good structure. It's got, it's got insects for food, mm-hmm. right, and, and, and brood protection too. So it's got multiple facets that pheasants and quail need during you know basically their entire year with the exception of a heavy winter yeah from a pollinator habitat perspective um you know what we've called brood cover since 1982 what has changed with the advent of this initiative that we have around creating pollinator habitat what what have we had to diversify the amount of species in our brood plantings um, or are we tackling that in a different way? That's a good question, Bob. And it it uh, brings up a couple of things. One is what I was trying to say earlier and wasn't able to get it out is brood cover becomes more important as you go farther west. As we see less rainfall, brood cover becomes more important because we need those broadleaf plants, we need that moisture, and we need those bugs later on in the in the summer. Um, but the other point that that you make is what we've learned as we've started these pollinator plantings. And it is, it's more diversity. In fact, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking about planting cover for upland wildlife mm-hmm. where, um, you know, and, and this is because of CRP, because a lot of our mixes and a lot of things we try to do is going to mimic those, those programs that need to happen in CRP. But what we have learned is that switching that whole idea around where the majority of the, of the seeding is forbs 
and and less of it, the the, the lesser amount is the grasses mm-hmm. and and even sedges that we're using now in a lot of our mixes. We've kind of reversed that that whole idea. And then the other thing that we've learned is that more diversity. You know, I'm even with with pollinator. A lot of people started off talking about you know nine four species and three or four grass species and there's plenty of pollinators now that got 40 plus forb species in them and you know 10 10 grass seeds or and, and when we talk about grass seeds we talk about sedges and those well wetland or 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 even dry dry dryland sedges in there so it's it's a completely different thinking in how we're doing our our seedings hmm. i i remember you remember this um, old trifold brochure that pheasants forever produced they you know, dates back into the early 80s that would show this diagram of the United States and it'd say 98% of the country. You remember where I'm yeah, going? Yeah, I 98%. Ask. You maybe created this, Matt. I helped, I helped out with that thing. 98% <laughs> of the country, the number one limiting factor for pheasants was nesting cover. The yeah. other 2%, which is uh, far northwestern North Dakota and part of Montana was yeah. the limiting the number one limiting factor was shelter cover, shelter um winter yeah, cover winter cover yeah. um is that still true today or is it more complex than well that? first off where that came from is back in the day we always said that was the cutoff of where where cattails cut it off cut okay. off and so even though you know you know there's plenty of sloughs up in northwest North Dakota they were, they tended to be primarily grass or or Forbes, and they didn't hold up well as, as well as in the heavy winter. Yeah, um, that's changed just because our world's changing. Sure. Um, and the other thing is, is that uh, growing up, it was always about nesting cover in Iowa, and it still is. But because of more, because our our uh, our, our habitat has become more fragmented, we've lost more of it. Winter covers become a much bigger component than hmm. I'd like to admit, because mm-hmm. I like to focus on on grasslands. But so what we are doing, if, to pull it back to pollinators, is we're making the best grassland habitat that we possibly can and continuing to work on, on winter habitat. So I think, I think even though winter habitat has become a bigger deal, we're, sti- we're doing a better job with our, with our grassland habitat, and that's as, one, especially as we relate to native, native species. And that's one of the things, too, that I think we've pointed out on most podcasts, especially when we're talking about habitat, is how do we make each acre the most productive it can possibly be and i think you know pollinator habitat has become a big component of that i was you know i mean they're one of the i think i think a national leader right number of pollinator habitat uh acres out there and and especially you know when i love to go down to iowa since i used to work down there for pheasants forever as a regional rep and when i get down there and hunt some of those new pollinator plantings now it just it, it surprises me how many birds are using those because when you take pollinator habitat compared to what, you know, traditional pheasant cover, what people think, just a, a mixture of, you know, maybe three, three four grasses, mm-hmm. times have changed. And yeah. I'm, we're changing with them. And mm-hmm. every time I go hunting now, it just surprises me when you get into those pollinator plantings that it doesn't look that thick, but when you start going through and you actually see the structure in there and you see these areas where these, these birds are actually like roosting during the evening – um, and when you harvest those birds and you take a look at their crop afterwards, mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of, the amount of insects in there, it's right. crazy. Grasshoppers and beetles. And yeah. All I mean, it's sorts of- all across the board. So that, that really, uh, I don't know that, that floors me as a mm-hmm. pheasant hunter and, and just, I would, I would, uh, you know, 
try to try to get people to take time to examine those types of things and maybe learn a little bit about, you know, it's, they're not just, they're not just here because it's awesome cover. There's, there's other reasons for it. And, uh, you know, having those insects and things out there, I think it makes a huge difference. I know it does because I've hunted them. You know, I'm going to go off subject just a little bit, but one of the neater things I've seen, you know, you always look back and say, God, I wish I would have done that, you know, but I, there's a biologist down in Iowa who for years will take his pheasants and go to the craw and, and, uh, open it mm-hmm. and identify what's in there mm-hmm. and he actually keeps dried stuff from these different things through the years so if he's at an unusual place he'll have that and when you think about it that's a heck of a neat little thing to do is to try, try to identify and see all the different whether it's whether it's grass or or, or um, seeds or whether it's uh, bugs mm-hmm. what a fantastic thing to go through and do um to sort of chronicle you know well, it also put, tips put, your hand as to where you might be able to find more birds, too, well, right? I, I, you know, the only time that I ever even came close to that is I started to find some circular weird seeds that these birds were in down in a, down in a bottom along the Wapsie River. And I, I, I didn't do much, but I did go out and finally find the plant that they were coming from, you know. So that was kind of a huh. – that was about my biggest venture. <laughs> did you hold on to those seeds, too? I still do. Do you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a new, it's a new fetish. I'm going to get in there. <laughs> uh, you know, we talked about just a little bit ago nesting cover, brood cover, food, and winter cover. Will pheasants and quail also use brood cover slash pollinator cover – to nest it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, and that's the other thing that people listening to us will go, well, heck, most, most cover when it's young is very good for pheasants, and, you know, they like that early successional stuff. The other point that we're trying to do with, with these pollinator plantings is is to have something that's going to be like that for 10 years, mm-hmm. that the ver- diversity is there and the good things that it provides is going to last for a longer period of time than just two or three years, and then, you know, slowly start to go downhill. So, yeah, I think that they, they, heck yes, they nest in it. I, I told you the story when we started about last day of the season in Iowa, those darn hens roosting, you right. know, nightly roost bowls out there in a dang pollinator, and it looked like they'd been roosting there for three weeks, you know. And I'm like, it can't be that dang good a spot. <laughs> but uh, it was like that. We looked down and just amazed. So the evolution of pheasants forever and quail forever's sort of approach to habitat is nesting cover, brood cover, equals pollinator habitat you know like jared mentioned earlier it's it's making every acre the best it can be and pollinator habitat connects those links together yeah you can sure can and and it proves it improves some of those stands that might be getting older Mm -hmm. you know that have been around for 15 or 20 years you know it just it improves them by adding that component to those to those that area out there and you know we we love it because it produces more birds mm-hmm. right yeah. but you can't underestimate its aesthetic beauty to not only hunters but to the the general public too when they come across a pheasants forever or quail forever habitat project that is a pollinator project um, it turns heads if my habitat specialist from iowa and or our habitat specialist from iowa and minnesota could be sitting here you know, I said that we've been planting this for eight years, but the last three or four years has been intense where mm-hmm. we've been planting a lot of it. Their stories about landowners, and I got one personally just because I went to help him because he was close to my house. The amount of calls that I got the first year about, you know, what the heck is this weed, and I'm cutting all these, am I doing the right thing, and, and just, you know, 
a good retired farmer who has not used to anything like a pollinator planting and is concerned about the weed population in there and what's happening out there and wants to see some results quickly, uh, walking him through that. And then three years later, where he came to a, this guy came to one of our workshops and talked about the, just how much important it was to have this planting there, how he got such a kick out of, he's had kids stop by and do their winter or their, you know, their senior pictures in his pollinator mm. plot. He's had people stop and do um, wedding pictures in his pollinator. Wow. I've heard that from three different spots in Iowa where guys have called me and said, this thing's so beautiful. People that we don't even know are stopping and asking if we, they can walk into it or go and take pictures into it. There's a guy, and I and I, I'm sh- I should be ashamed of myself. I should have looked up his name from Minnesota that, that has got farms in northwest Iowa. He plants a pollinator seed in a really strong one. And he calls me up and says, you know, he says, Matt, this is the greatest pheasant habitat I've ever seen in my life. He says the neighbors, you know, he, he buys more and more of it every year. It's a it's a very diverse mix. And uh, he got hooked on it and got a lot of pheasants around it and, and is a great seller for us uh, for the program. Now, you know, he likes to see it. He talks about the birds in the summertime and the use during summer. He's primarily hooked into this because of the pheasant thing. But it's doing its job out there from a... Hmm. from a pollinator standpoint and providing good habitat for those insects. Well, I hope one of those landowners is listening because October 10th is my 10th anniversary. So <laughs> I'm serious. I, I carry if my, if my wife, Carrie, if you're listening to this, I got our spot picked out for pictures. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's a it new is. marketing tactic. And, and yeah. those guys would all say that they all have had horrible phone calls three years ago. Uh-huh. And if, last year in particular – a lot of calls, actually, where the landowner called and say, listen, I apologize for jumping on you so bad. This was new to me. He says, you just can't believe what this what this plot looks like in its third year. And you know, we're, we're very proud of it. So. Were they getting calls from their neighbors, probably? Well, you know, we wrote up a sheet on, you know, how to prepare for this. And, yeah. You know, my first one was, as you, instead of standing out there and freaking out over what might be coming out, go talk to your neighbors and just tell them, please, to take a take a deep breath and... And relax for a year. It's going to look better as the years go, <laughs> as the years go by. So, so why is that? I mean, we, you, you touched on it takes three years for a pollinator planting to actually look like it's supposed to. What what does it look like in those first three years? You mentioned well, weeds. For, well, but, first off, we put we put some things in there to help help a landowner see things fairly quickly. So everybody knows black-eyed Susans. Okay. And you, if you're a pheasant person, you've probably heard of partridge pea. Mm-hmm. But those are two biannual plants that, that, you know, given, you know, partridge pea, if it gets in the right place, it'll basically be a perennial. It'll stay there. But black-eyed Susans fall off a little bit. But they come up that first year and show themselves. And so a lot of times what I'll do to landowners, I'll say, all right, you know, clip this thing if you think you need to. You know, every time it gets to up just over your knees, clip it down to 10 inches. Try to do it three times a year. And that's going to help you because the weeds will get cut and, you know, you're not going to have to look at them. Uh, the other thing it does is, of course, it allows some light down to those young plants that are just starting. But even more importantly, it kind of stresses those weeds out. And so the pollinator plot, any rain that we get during the year will help uh, help those young plants that are still growing down there rather than ones that have had, you know, they've been cut in half and have shut down and they're not utilizing the water like the, the other ones are. Now, we've been lucky, you know, we've been concerned about, you know, a drought conditions, but God, we get, you know, more rain than we need in the Midwest these days. And, and so our pollinator plots have been coming on good. So I'll say that landowner, say, look, if you can find 
uh, a black-eyed Susan, and they know what a black-eyed mm-hmm. Susan looks like. You can find a partridge pea. That's a B plus. You did a good job. Your pollinator plot. If it'll, you get, it'll look good in the first year. It will look. No, it's not going to look good. <laughs> oh, no, but, it, but you'll have you'll you're have. Gonna, you're going to know that things are happening out okay. there. But uh, they have to understand that first year is an ugly is an ugly period of time. <laughs> if they get these orange little globes out there, little balls of flowers out there that are they're actually a a, a, a milkweed. Okay. Um, what am I thinking? What time? What type of milkweed am I talking about? Butterfly, 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 butterfly. Excuse me, butterfly Swamp. milkweed. Excuse yeah. me, folks. Um, butterfly milkweed. If that shows up, that's an A plus. Mm-hmm. You're at the top of the class. And and in most cases, that'll if they get any kind of decent growing year, that'll that'll show up. So the second year, then you're going to start seeing a few grasses pop up along with a lot more flowers. But the neat thing about these things is they they change, and if depending on your diversity and how conservative uh, uh, your plant community is that you've planted in there. Now, there could be things that might take, you know, you look at uh, Blazing Star or Compass Plant might mm-hmm. take five years to show up. Yeah. And so the, the plot is continually changing. But, but once you get to the, you know, the first year is a challenge. The second year, you're going to know everything's going okay. The third year, you're going to be tickled pink with your, with your plot. So I, I've got Compass and Cup Plant in my backyard. Yeah. And it you know, it, it takes, in some cases, some of the plants feels like it's taken more than three years. Is that because, you know, they're, they're such tall plants and it, they need root structure to go deeper? Or is it, what's the you know, botany uh, behind that? Well, unfortunately, you don't have a botanist here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like these plants because they're, they're good for wildlife. Uh-huh. But I'm not, you know, compass plant, for example, it used to be they'd say it was seven years before you see flowering. Well, most of the time now when we plant four to five years, they seem to be there. And I think that's just because we're planting more of it and taking a look at them. Mm. Cup plant, you know, that, what an interesting plant is when you talk about overhead cover and, right. and loafing cover. You know, sometimes that can really take over in some wet areas, but it still is good cover for those birds to go under. But, you know, my favorite cup plant story is taking sixth graders, we're leading first graders around in the prairie i was doing this prairie walk a long long time ago and we'd we'd walk through and talk about the prairies and i talked to one little first grader and we were standing next to a cup plant i said hey what do you what do you think the name of this plant is and honest to god the little kid had coveralls on i mean he was such a farmer it was unbelievable and he kind of had his honest to god he had his i almost started laughing because it was just so darn cute he looks over in that plant and he looks down and he sees that rainwater in the in the you know where the leaves yep, come out he yep. goes well, that looks like a rain gauge plant to me. I'd say it's a rain gauge plant. And I have, I have the hardest time calling it cup plant anymore yeah, because it's a rain gauge plant. You know what? I, this, this whole conversation right here, it reminds me of, as the PR guy here, I get a lot of messages on Facebook and through email and stuff. And whether, um, whether it's our habitat specialist under you working with uh, – um, University of Minnesota on, on different pollinator plots and studying the impact of some of those and some really diverse species to our chapters planting pollinator plots to things things getting cut to keep the weeds out in the first year is instant gratification. I think when it it's an important point because when it comes to pheasant habitat, I don't care if it's pollinator habitat or um, you know any of the other mixtures out there that we're putting on the landscape, you got to give it time. Things don't things don't happen overnight, um, and I think 
with pollinator habitat especially it's it's really important that some of that stuff might not come up for four or five years but you gotta you gotta stick with it and you gotta manage it because at the end of the day if you're doing the right things you're looking at you're looking at a uh wedding anniversary picture type area yeah Yeah. you know to go and yeah hang out in yeah and And to hunt in yeah and and that's just a it's a great thing for the midwest because it is something that takes some time to to mature we're we're a one-year society around mm-hmm. here you know and god i'm glad we got it because it keeps things running you know our <laughs> corn and soybeans keep things running around here but it's good that people realize that there's things that take a longer time and 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 the other thing the other thing that you know i don't know big picture is that this pollinator's done a great job because it's allowed growers to actually be able to expand the number of Growers meaning growers for the seed, okay, be able to expand their their what they're planting, and being able to sell it, and so th- you don't even think about it, but but having the seed available hmm. so that we can do these things is incredibly important. And so there's a lot of growers, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, that uh, you know that produce this seed and need to have a market to sell it in. And this is this has given them an opportunity to do that, and it's been a that's been a very good hmm. important part. So as we approach um, the planting of a pollinator plant, we talked about site prep and choosing a location when we did the food plot podcast. Let's let's parallel that with a pollinator discussion. Um, what what are you looking for to identify where you want to plant your pollinator project? Well, you know me; I like bigger projects rather than smaller projects. But I still think that that if you if you can find an area where there's some difference. You know, if it's a hillside where you might have some drier ground up on mm-hmm. top and you come down to maybe something that might even be a little moist down the bottom, but, you know, seasonally, but you've got that change. I like that because as you go out and plant it, and you, you might even, uh, we call it zonal planting, you might not go that far, but if you've, got, if you've got enough species in your mix where you can have some things that grow better up here on the dry stuff mm-hmm. than grow down there in the, in the wetter stuff, um, that's good because you got some diversity within your seed. It looks better. Mm-hmm. There's different different things out there. There's almost different little habitats out in there. So even if it was just 10 acres, but it went from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill, I think you'd have, you know, they're all very good, but that'd be a nice one to have where you can see the difference in, mm. in what comes up. The plants that sure. frequent those two spots. When you think about um, the life cycle or the ecological needs of a pheasant or a quail, do you want to plant it next to food plots, winter cover, cattail sloughs, or is that somewhat um, I- irrelevant when you're talking? I think about it's, it's somewhat irrelevant, but I, I would I wouldn't necessarily put it next to food plots or or next to winter cover. Mm-hmm. I'd put it out there where it it really a south exposure. Honest to goodness, if it could have a south southern aspect, I think that would be as good as anything you could ask for. Because those birds like that, you know, they'll use it in the afternoon. It, it's a place where they'll they'll frequent, and uh, you know, those other things are for their other purposes. When I say not next to it, I I literally sure. mean that not next to it. But if it's if it's a hundred yards away, there's nothing wrong with right. that at all. And you know, part of um, you, you mentioned you like bigger projects are better, and part of that is from a nesting perspective, right? If if it's a, a bigger swath of habitat, birds are going to choose that and be safer from predators, right? Yeah, that's the, basically the reason for the bigger, the bigger um, 
the bigger blocks. Um, so I hate to give away spots, but <laughs> <laughs> hot spotty. I worked hot a bunch. Spotty. I worked a bunch in South Dakota this fall. I was just helping us with the habitat specialist, mm-hmm. and I'd come across Highway 20. Well, there's a town and there's a reservoir up there by Highway 20. Big public area around it, and I would t- turn off the highway. Just happen, just roaming kind of. Turned off the highway, went to where the public land started, turned left. Excuse me, turned left and went about a half a mile, and it was the typical public area. There was a great big field of inning grass, and there was a great big field of big blue stem. And then there was this field that clearly was a com- you know, completely different color and completely different structure. I said, my God, they planted a pollinator there. Hmm. And I couldn't even tell you if it was this year or last year, but, but it, was, it was in the fall. But there happened to be corn across the field. And, and you know, up in that country, usually as soon as it's picked, it's, it's, it's under. Mm-hmm. But it was still there. And I thought, well, I'm going to run through this dang thing. Jumped out, made one sweep through maybe 25 acres, and 35 birds came out. I mean, I was mm-hmm. astounded. I did that four more times in the year. <laughs> the last day of the year, the last day of the year, I was, I was limited out, and I pulled up just to see, and by God, the corn was still there. Not standing, but there was, and, and I thought, I'm going to go through it. I'm not going <laughs> to take a walk. I'm not going to take a gun. I just want to be able to say that there were birds in it, and mm-hmm. last day of the season, on a, on a very busy public hunting area, there were, I could have shot birds in the dang thing the last day. So I, that's, I'm, I'm just con- convincing people again how how good these areas can be and how much birds. So like the them. critics will say, well, it was the corn that pulled those birds, yeah. right? But okay. it was also the pollinator habitat that created them. Yeah. Right? It was a, that complex. Yeah. yeah. And I'm getting too old to walk through that big blue seven Indian grass all the time, too. That stuff's we've, hard walking, man. We've actually got um, one of our biologists in northern Iowa, and it wasn't that many weeks ago, and we still had a ton of snow, and it was after after one of their blizzards. Um, this pollinator plot had been a couple, couple years established, um, it was next to a, next to a wetland area as well. But, um, if you're going pheasants forever's Facebook page and, and look under videos, it's not that far back. There's just a pile of birds. They, they pull up and just get the camera rolling. Just a pile of birds coming out of this. Uh, I think it was a CP, CP 42 mm-hmm. pollinator conservation practice, 42 mm-hmm. pollinator habitat. And, uh, it's pretty, pretty astounding. All right. So you've picked your location. Yep. What do you need to do to get it ready for a pollinator planting okay so that'd be just like almost like any type of prairie planting so what i tell people is the best medium that you can plant into just so you get a picture in your head Mm -hmm. is a harvested field of soybeans Hmm. so soybean stubble best thing in the world to plant into really yes um i think that you know what what it's had is it because most of our soybeans are roundup ready Mm -hmm. it's had several um clean outs you know weeds that have come up two or three times and they've gone through and and knocked them out um, it's a it's a great medium because it's open, and and you're not going to have as much weed prote- pressure right off the bat. And what we'll do, Bob, is we'll use those soybean fields all the way from January, you know, until July first. We'll plant those, and in January we just go out and we broadcast the seed and lay it on the ground. Some people like to roll it after that, but I found that it took me a long time to be convinced that this frost seeding in the wintertime works as well as they say it works. But it does, hmm. and we'll in, in right ju- onto the snow. Well, if there's snow there, now I've got my guys used to be over in Wisconsin. They were they were crazy. They'd plant in nine inches of snow. I thought that was crazy. I'll do like about up to three inches. Okay, but it's a great time if you can do it. But yep. we'll also do it, 
Yeah, we use more Trimble now to make sure that's expensive seeding. So we'll have GPS over top of us, you know, showing us where we're, we're planting so we can, you know, so we don't over overplant right. all the time. Uh, but with snow, you can see exactly where you're planting, and you can go out and yep. look look at what spread you have and all that. And the assumption is, my assumption is that that's creating moisture for the seed and gets it going. It can, but but it also just the the, the action is the freezing and thawing. As hmm. as we go through February and March, the freezing and thawing basically lays that seed right underneath the surface. You can imagine that it's that wet mud mm-hmm. is creating good seed to soil contact. So it's an excellent way to hmm. to plant. It's not the most, you know, it's not the best way. They're all good ways, but after that, then we'll go in and just no-till into those soybean fields. And actually, if it's a real clean, open soybean field, you can even use just a regular native seeder still, but one that has agitation, mm-hmm. but, but you don't necessarily even have to use no-till. Hmm. Now, my point I was getting to, sorry. Mm, that's all right. <laughs> Is it think about that soybean field, and if you want to, if you've got brome out there that you're going to plant into, try to make it look as close to a uh, to a harvested soybean field, and then they'll be at your best medium. So, if it was brome, maybe it's maybe it's coming out of some program, or maybe you're just going to go plant it in a place that's you know been brome for a long time. You'd want to you'd want to mow it in July, and you'd want to spray it in the fall. It's very important that it gets sprayed in the fall with with like roundup or something to get a good kill on it to get a good kill you want kill to kill the weed the the brome is the, the brome, weed okay. in this situation okay so we want to knock out those those non-native cool season grasses the heck out of there okay and you might kill some weeds but the time you're going most likely because they're going to outcompete the plants that you want right and that, if you don't kill that brome it will be back in that plant in that seeding and it'll cause havoc okay um the perfect thing to do if you've got the ability and the time Spray it in the fall. If it's, let's just say it's about, when you spray it, it's 9 or 10 inches. You know, as soon as that brown up, browns up and dies, burn it off. Hmm. Burn off that dead material. It does two things for you. One is, the best thing is, it makes that ground black. It'll warm up quicker in the spring, and you'll get weeds popping up a little bit quicker in the rest. We'll also use this when we've got a, uh, a thistle problem because mm-hmm. those thistles will pop up. And if you want, if you're there, if you're not an absentee landowner, you can get out there and knock those out maybe even earlier. But you let it green up again with whatever brome is still alive and, and any weeds that come up. And in my area, in northeast Iowa, I usually have the date of around May 10th. We'll go out and we'll spray that a second time in the spring and come in and plant right after that. It's a great way to, to seed with a drill. But as you imagine, because you burn it, even though you're going to get a bunch of grass up in the spring, once you kill it the second time, you'll walk out and you'll be surprised that this looks a lot more like a like a harvested bean field than you think. And the mm-hmm. big thing that you did is not necessarily killing the plants. You killed and hopefully burned up that inch or so of duff that's been built up because of that brome that's there. And if it's dry enough, you know, you'll cook that so you're down to bare soil. And even though you've got another growing, a growth of brome or weeds there, when you kill it, you'd be surprised how little there is. Hmm. Now, that's a critical point, is the seed has to be planted shallow, much more than what we used to think about. <clears throat> I got a technique that I give to landowners to make them feel good about it. So they've got a drill. Let's just say it's, well, whether it's a, a, a Great Plains or a Truax native grass drill, you take one of the slots, and now what we used to do is we put in two handfuls of corn in there. And they'd start off and, you know, that'd be the only thing they had planting, but they'd They'd go, and you, and you follow that row, and the, and the top of your corn kernel, you ought to be seeing it. And you know that you're planting it over a quarter of an inch, but not a half an inch. Yep. 
you're getting it deep enough. Now I've gone to safflower seeds. A safflower <laughs> seed looks just like a, a sunflower seed that's been pulled out of the hull. Hmm. But it's white. It's a, it's a chalky white, so it's easier to see. So we take two handfuls of that, just go to a bird seed shop and buy whatever, and put two or three handfuls in it and head on down the row. And so that's only about, you know, that's not a quarter of an inch thick, and it should be laying on the ground. You ought to be able to see the, the white top of it. And if you're seeing that, then you're planting. If you don't see it, you need to adjust your drill so that you, you know, until you can see it. That's a great way to make sure that you're planting shallow enough. It's just you got to remember with these pollinator seedings, there's so much variety in there. So that means there's a lot of seeds of a lot of different sizes and shapes. Think of that compass plant or that yep. cup plant, yep. great big old flat seed. And then you got, you know, something like Culver's root, which you, know, you can't even see the dang stuff. So it's, there's, there's a lot of variety there. And as long as, long as we're on seeds, I, I've got a question for you that I hear a lot that mm-hmm. comes through at Pheasants Forever. So when people refer to pollinator habitat, the first thing they think is, you know, the, the, dollar, the dollars and cents of it. Can you, can you expand a little bit? I mean, it, 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 doesn't have to, it doesn't have to cost you thousands of dollars per mix, correct? No. I mean, there's, there's economical ways to plant pollinator habitat without breaking the bank. Yeah. Yeah, and the best way is to shop around. And it's still diverse mixes, right? Yes. Yeah, but there'll be a lot of variety. There's going to be a lot of difference between one person's mix and the next. You know? Yeah, so. you can you can make it as diverse as, as you want, and the cost probably goes up with more diversity, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, uh, you know, whether you're in a program or you're, you're just taking an old grass field and you want to invigorate it with, with pollinator habitat, um, we, can, we can help you with that. Price changes by your address too. <laughs> I, mean, I'm, yeah. I don't mean to be smart, but, no, but you know, because of the, the, the grass that's being sold to urbanites within the the Twin Cities area uh-huh. is a, is a heck of a lot more expensive. I mean, it's just because there is a lot more work to it. But that's what I see. Huh. You know, people market to different social groups sure. and different groups of people, and those, that's why I mean by shop around is you, you can you'll find you can find mixes that are they're more expensive than the. The old three grasses and five forks, you know, but but they're not right. They're not outrageous. And you want to try to stick with like native ecotype, correct? It's a good thing to shoot for, you know. What I call it is local source, locally sourced, okay. and uh, you know we try to we try to say that that you know Iowa source seed in Iowa. We've got a couple different things that we go by, but we try to put Iowa source seed out there when we when we're dealing with Iowa. And Minnesota does. You know, Minnesota almost goes over the top with it, but they they they're very interested in it's an important thing up here too to to try to find seed local i want to dive even deeper on seed because i think from a pollinator perspective this is probably the most complex component of um, this entire habitat discussion and that's you know when you're evaluating seed you're looking for diversity of species different benefits for different species of insects right butterflies you need milkweed you're looking at different structures you're looking at different bloom periods Mm -hmm. right talk to us about how you tackle those different components of your seed decision well okay so what i look for actually i'll tell you what i use in iowa with usda we have a calculator Okay. It has all the different species in it, and you can see what type of year they, they bloom from. You can look at see the size. What type of, the, of year they bloom? Like what, what time so period? They, right. Spring, is it, summer, is it a fall. May, a June, July? And you need to have different bloom periods 
right. for different insects to, or for, for all the insects to have. Yeah, it's just like when I talked about our, our brood, brood, right. brood areas and how important they are out right. west. Yeah, you don't want to have a bunch of spring flowers and all the thing, everything shuts off. Right, you know, everything mid, is looping, in yep. and it's, yeah. and it's yeah. done by June 1st, right? Right, right. That's great for those those June first folks, but right. everybody else is in trouble. Just like when the <laughs> when the water shuts off out in you know what in in Montana and there's no insects around, that's that's bad for those pheasants. So it's got to be a continuous type of thing. And then structure, structure and and the variety of plants are great for the for for the pollinating insects, but it's also good for that plot. So that mm-hmm. there's, I tell people that when it comes to costs, you know we'll have. Mixes that range, the pollinator mixes, we'll say, from $200, $185 to, to over $600. Hmm. What you're buying with that $600 is probably longevity and just stability, meaning there's more species in it. It's going to remain a good plot, almost like, you know, not almost to like a prairie restoration type project where it's going to stay and it's going to, it's going to be there for a long period of time where you can go and buy cheaper than what we offer, and it's going to look like a big bright spot for four, three years, and by six years, you know there's there's hardly any forb, you know there's three forbs left in it. Yeah, grass but starts to take over at that. Yeah, point. and and everything was used was early early successional stuff that doesn't mm. stay in there, and and isn't going to be there on a on a longevity standpoint. So, um, that's important to pick for that for that diversity and and uh, structure time of year, um, compatibility with each other and also just finding so we'll even break it up to where we have shrub like forbs where mm-hmm. like new jersey tea even lead plant we'll call it a, a woody species because it kind of has a woody stem to it and so we try to find different categories legume legumes of course and then just regular forbs and broadleaf forbs and woody species that might that might prov- provide good uh, and perhaps i'm making this too complicated because there are resources whether it's through the seed uh, mixes that you have put together for pheasants forever and quail forever or USDA. I mean, it's not like you have to build a mix yourself. I mean, you certainly can if you want to, if you custom, right. If you want like heavy duty cut plant, right. But by and large, there, some of this uh, um, ecological, you know, mix has already been created for you. Yeah. Well, for example, I get, good well-meaning people that are so excited they build the mix themselves mm-hmm. what they're losing out on by just you know going to usda whether it's a whether it's a farm bill biologist whether it's a state private lands person whatever the, the or 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 someone there within usda they're, lo- they're what they're losing is the knowledge of what comes up well and what doesn't mm-hmm. you know i just had the other day a person come and say i love this hoary pacoon god it blooms on our hillsides up in northeast iowa in the early spring it's the greatest stuff in the world i want a whole bunch of that in my mix and i said well it never comes up <laughs> it, it, it whatever it is and i've had some actually come up before and actually bloom but it's just one of those species that are so darn hard to get to actually whether it's the first year it's only a you know, minuscule little plant and it gets shaded out all the time. I don't know what the biology is behind it, but there's a lot of those plants that just don't. So it might be a wonderful plant, but you want to have something that's going to, that's going to work in your, hmm. in your planting, in your seeding. What about once you get uh, the seed on the ground, um, 
do you have to fertilize it? How, how no. much moisture does it need? What's the next step after you, well, I after still, you pick your seed? Uh, after you pick your seed, the big thing is getting it planted, thinking mm-hmm. about your site prep, because what I'll tell people is as important as the seeding is, and really the seeding, you know, the, the, the work of, of actually doing the seeding um, is important. You want the seed planted shallow. You can plant it. We plant our habitat specials plant from November 15th to July 1st. And we'll cut that. The only thing we'll do is maybe cut that off shorter if we happen to have a, a dry summer. And we haven't had a dry summer since 2011. So, you know, we haven't, we've, we plant till July 1st. We plant till they let us make us quit. And, and as long as we're getting rain, that's, that's, that's a fine thing. Cause maybe some of that stuff at the end, of, the end of, the, of that season, you know, might be a little slower to come. It might not look as good until the second year, mm-hmm. you know, or definitely not good until the third year. But, you know, you know, you, you got to get you got to get everything planted. But um, almost more important than the seeding is what you do afterwards. Mm. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna make for everybody sitting from out west who don't who don't aren't as big into mowing. I'm saying it doesn't have to be exactly how I tell you that it needs to be. If you're out west and rainfalls, you know, uh, you know, there's less rainfall. You don't have the the weed cover. And actually, in some cases, when it's dry like that, it's imp- those weeds can actually help you out hmm. because they're shading the ground and they're helping to keep that ground a little cooler and not bake things up. But what I say is mowing these pollinator sites is so very important, so much more important than our other ones because you got a lot of these forbs are just slower in terms of, you know, coming up and, and growing big enough and getting a foothold into that seeding so that they can eventually flower and show up. And so I say mow three times at least. Mm-hmm. I quit the first week of August. I don't mow after the first week of August. But, again, like I said earlier, when that plot gets up to the top of your knees, cut it down to 10 inches. Quit mowing the first week of August. It's going to look a little ragged that first year towards the end, but you've got to let some things grow and build up energy for the next year. And if you want to, if weeds bother you, if you don't like looking at that thing where it's just brown and weedy, um, the, the next year, the second year, maybe the third week of May, you know, whenever again the, it starts getting up uh, to your knees and mm-hmm. get out there and clip it, maybe even clip it a little higher if you're able to, because I'm sure those black-eyed Susans are going to be in that second year. They'll be growing quicker where the first year they were slower. But mow it one more time hmm. the second year, and you'll be fine. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service does that. They'll mow two years a lot, so it's not unheard of. I just, you know, try to make it so, you know, you do enough so you can do it and We've had a couple seedings where we've done both ways, mowed one and just let the other one go. And it's not that the other one doesn't show up, but you don't see the diversity in the, uh, in the non-mowed stuff like you see in the mowed stuff. It, if you're looking at, a, say, a piece of CRP ground that's been in the program for 15 years and has you know, evolved and become a monoculture yep. of grass, can you burn that disket and do what you're talking about, mowing it, um, Will the native forbs that are in that seed bed eventually take root and show themselves, or the ones that were originally there? The yeah, ones or, that or do you have there. to do you have to reinvigorate? Or do you have to, yeah. or do you simply have to plant more seed? To I make tell it people to plant more seed because I think you will see a surprising amount that will come back up. Mm-hmm. We do it because we've Habitat Forever will go out and help farmers who've who've got that, but they're. You know, they've, it, it used to be CP25, five grasses, ten forbs. And, you know, it's got, it's got gray-headed coneflower and 
you know, bergamot in there now. Mm-hmm. That's all that's left. Uh, we'll go out. We'll actually use Roundup and, you know, and, and burn it down and, and uh, usually burn it off and then burn it down with Roundup again in the spring. And every time we laugh, it's amazing how much of that original stuff comes up. Hmm. But not that much. I mean, in, not in, that much in terms of diversity of different species. Yeah, so I think I think going in there and putting some grass or some flowers in there is a good thing if you want to if you want to really reinvigorate it. Now there's stands where they had a, a lot of forbs go in, mm-hmm. and and yet there was enough grass in there where the grass ever after 15 years has taken over. In those cases, it's pretty amazing how that for, the forest would come up. As far as pollinator habitat goes, if you've, we'll stick on this theme of an old old CRP or an old stand of grass. Is it possible? Can you can you go through and just do a light disking on it and intercede and and hope hope for the best, or is that not a? Well, University of Northern Iowa does a lot of work on that stuff, and they say you need to mow that year afterwards. Okay. So the, what they'll say is go out and burn the area in the fall. Go out and broadcast the, the the flower seed in there, okay, and then and then mow five times the next year, hmm. high again. Mm-hmm. And what they'll and what they've done is they've done that, and then they've done ones that they've left, and they show pictures four or five years later. And the one that they left has got a few forbs in it, and the one that they mowed has got a lot of forbs in it. Really? So I think you gotta cut back because you, you imagine that native grass is gonna come right back yep. that next year, and, and and you know disking it. If you shallow disc it, you're you're probably reinvigorating it more than you're even killing it. If you disc high, farther, I suppose you could. They they're not discing; they're burning in the fall, laying the seed down, and and then basically fighting the grass enough until the until the forbs get started. So probably long story short on all this is that planting it and just walking away isn't a really good option. Right. Yeah. I mean, you gotta you gotta provide some sort of management management for it, and if you do that and take the right steps and Obviously, you know, Pheasants Forever and, and some of your local USDA offices, people are here to help with that. Um, that's that's how you create good pheasant and quail habitat. Yeah, there's an amazing amount of information that we need to get out in it. We're kind of bouncing all over the place, but you're right. The other thing that I tell people, maybe don't worry about trying to disc it or kill it and then getting our flowers in it. Start over. Plow the darn thing up. Now that people say, oh, my God, I don't want to plow it up. Well, we plow up three quarters of our ground every single year in this country, you know, and, and where we're living. So it's not like it's an unusual thing. You know, don't be afraid to start over because it might be just in the long run, it might be just the best thing to do and and get it all worked up and go in and plant that pollinator site rather than trying to fix something that's kind of wrong already. Mm-hmm. Make it better. Just start it over and, and do it. You know, the, the, what we've learned, not really correctly because they were doing – those folks that got those CP25 mixes out there, they were doing the best thing that we knew to do, knew how to, how to plant and what to do back in the day. Right. Now we're just doing something a little bit differently. You, you talked about, you know, kind of you get to year three of a pollinator planting, and it's like, oh, you know, everything, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> right. The, everything's blooming, and, and it's it's uh, finally you've 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 done all this mowing and site prep, and it's finally here. At that point, um, is it is high maintenance going forward now that it's established, or is pollinator habitat simply you know it's, it's going to be a little higher maintenance habitat to keep it um, quality? Okay, it's higher maintenance because this is when fire steps in. Okay. Now I usually don't burn these sites until the third year. I don't like burning even the young these young forbs. 
I want them to get a good foothold into that prairie. You know, they wouldn't be there if they couldn't handle fire. But I still, on these new plantings, I like to give it a good three years so that those Not forks, scorch them right away. Yeah, yeah. It so just feels better. And at the, In the fall of the third year? No, I do it in the early spring. And I just sent a directive out to the guys this year saying, look, it, I don't mean to make work more, more of a hassle, but we're going to have a lot of three-year-old three um, pollinator seedings out there. You know, we really ought to be trying to plant, get these things done by around April 10th. Now, that all depends. That can go a week and a half mm-hmm. either way because of weather, but or later, really. But um, I hate – I mean, we need to be thinking about that because if we are going to burn, we, we, wanna, we want to emphasize more forbs, not more grass. Mm-hmm. And so we want to get that burnt early so that the burning does what it's, what it's meant to do, clear away duff, air, open up the site, but we want to allow those – broadleaves to come up rather than grass so if we're if we're planting a if it's a three-year-old um pollinator site and they burn it may 4th uh-huh. it's gonna you're already gonna see more grass into it the next year then because you're really you're really serving the grass species when you plant when you For burn warm, that light. warm seasons yeah warm seasons. so just so i understand the chronology here sp- spring first year you plant right yep. and you and you mow and the second year you're gonna have to mow again third year it comes up and then are you burning after yeah, that third after year? The third okay, year, so yeah. b- the, before the spring of the fourth year yeah. is when you want to burn. Yes. Okay. Yep. And I think after that, so there's a lot of different things going out there with prescribed fire. There's people talking about about uh, summer burns mm-hmm. and the effectiveness of that. Um, you can you can burn in the spring. You can burn in the fall. You can burn you know late spring. The late spring's great when you're trying to knock trees out or or summer burns seem to be a ticket to to knock trees out good what i say after that fourth year i would say that i would burn every every couple of years maybe maybe not if it's you know in an area where it's touchy or whatever mm-hmm. but but uh continuing that burning i think is important and also doing it at different times it doesn't always have to be the first of april it can be in the fall you know it can be in the summer um but but you know continue to put a little bit of fire to that thing and there is a I would say, you know, we get a lot of questions about that too. There is an intimidation factor with prescribed prescribed burning. You got to have the knowledge to do it. You got to have the people and equipment to do it. But I think, you know, whether it's pheasants forever, or, um, you know, quail forever too, we've got prescribed burn associations out there. We've got burn trailers. So I would just, uh, you know, if people have questions about that type of thing, uh, calling Habitat Forever and, and Mr. O'Connor over here or calling Pheasants Forever, it's it's uh, it's an easy way we can help connect you with some of those folks that, that do those things for a living. And the other thing is you just brought up something that I, I had a note to, to bring up, um, clovers and non-native clovers and, and how some people are putting, you know, including those right into these pollinator mixes. Mm-hmm. So remember, when it comes to the honeybee, it's a non-native species. And as much as it'll use and in, in, uh, take advantage of a native pollinator plot, hmm. it's still not their preferred grazing. They'd rather have clovers and, and you know, other things out there, too. But, I mean, they, they do prefer clovers. So sometimes you're seeing that mixed right into the pollinator plot. I don't think they work together at all, you know, very well. I bring the clovers out and circle the pollinator hmm. plot with a fire break okay. that's made up, prim- you know, enough grass to yep. whether you've got regulation or whether, you know, you just want to make it a good a good site. A little bit of grass, but, but heavy on the clovers. And so you can use, you know, the medium red is okay, but I like to dwell on some of the white clovers like Ladino clover or Alcite clover or, 
or you know I even put in the little uh, Dutch um, Dutch clover because if you got a real wet site and maybe a little shade along the edge or something like that that'll do good so we put clover in there mow it once a year and that clover is not a perennial spot or perennial thing but if you mow it once a year more than likely you'll you know it'll it'll persist for for you know 10 yeah. years great great structure uh, great, great habitat, right? It yeah. creates creates an edge for those birds to come out to, and you've got that added bonus of providing a, a burn break, yeah. which... And I tell people, you may never be atten- intending to burn this, but things change over a 10-year mm-hmm. period. Yep. Now you've got that, that, that fire break there, and you really do. you got great habitat. You know, of course, the young pheasants like it. The deer love it. You know, it's just, it's, you're putting clover where it's supposed to be and you're putting the prairie where it's supposed to be mm-hmm. and they're helping each other and the honeybees are happy and the native pollinators are happy. That's a good tip. So let's, let's talk about making monarchs happy. What, uh, is milkweed and the varieties of milkweed in most of these pollinator mixes or do you have to augment your mixes to, to get, uh, milkweed in okay, there? Okay. Here's my tip of the week. Um, here it comes. I, I love, I love. <laughs> Listen uh, folks. Well, I like common milkweed. Uh-huh. You know, and then there's a bunch of other meads, whoop, milkweed, and Sullivan's and all kinds of swamp. different. Swamp. Yeah, I love swamp. And and one of the reasons is because I've gone to growers before, and they'll they'll actually cuss the dang monarch because they're all over. They literally literally strip these swamp milkweeds of everything, and they don't get any, <laughs> they don't get any flower or, or seed off the darn thing. And so I'm saying, well, you know, if that's what they're seeing, um, I think what that, that tells us is, is that swamp milkweed is a good milkweed to use, you know, in addition to, to common. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with butterfly milkweed. It's just not used by quite as many species as other ones. But it adds, it's a great plant that takes up space and adds diversity. Um, kind of the meads or I'm thinking the meads and Sullivan and uh, green milkweed. There's a lot of other ones that are, you know, you're not going to really see them in big groups, but they're out there and, and there's nothing, I mean, they're utilized. The milkweed's important. No, actually... You know, when I go out and, and seed um, a site where we're using a drill in Iowa, I know that I'm I'm getting yep. common milkweed just because of that. Just the, the disturbance yeah. of it. Disturbance I was just going to point that out. The same thing that I've seen yeah. working at my own the other th- Yeah, and the other thing with common milkweed is that, it, uh, you know, if, you, if you've got a spot where there's 10 scattered ones, go out and mow it. Mow it high. But those things will come back up from the root, and you'll end up getting those patches of it that's, that, that they like, too. That brings me up to two things. The, for, for monarchs, the, 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 the milkweed is important, so very important. But also the planting a good array of flowers for, that are blooming in the fall mm-hmm. for those monarchs to migration. be able to refuel and build up energy for the first migration, however far they go. <laughs> and give us uh, some examples. Of I like that. the asters. I like, you know, sky blue, um, com- uh, uh, smooth blue. And, and and New England asters all all fine. I really like um, the two, uh, you know, rough blazing star and, and prairie blazing okay. star. They th- those birds. I mean those 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 uh, monarchs seem to just love those plants. Anything that's blooming in the fall, golden I think, I think's a good. Yeah, it, anything that helps them. We the, some of these seedings. If I see anything that um, anything that I'd criticize so far is I'm trying to build up more species in the fall to to really have a good strong seeding out there in the fall 
and it's you know it's it's pretty amazing too when you see when you see that migration going strong in the fall and there's one video and you guys have probably seen it shared here it's all over i think it was on our website on our facebook page but uh jason bly one of our conservation seed guys over in illinois uh, his family farm has a lot of pollinator habitat on it. And he had a video that was shared, and it was shared a bunch of times, thousands of times by people. I mean, there are literally thousands of monarchs in the air at one time, and he's he's walk, walking through them and getting hit in the face, you know, while they're on their migration. I just think it's an, I, I don't, I think it's an incredible video, but right. it just shows the power of, of, you know, planting that habitat and having that food and structure available for for those critters while they're on their migration south i think it's pretty cool people don't you know that's that's a thing that happens that people aren't even aware of anymore you know it was nothing in september in early mid-september when you'd get that crisp cold night and, and in a sense those monarchs are doing the same thing that they do down in mexico they'll come to a tree or to a shrub line and they'll fill up into that area and they're mm-hmm. and basically they're keeping warm and and I've seen it. I, I remember up in in Bremer County one time, pulling up to a just a tree in the road ditch, and the thing was orange. It was solid dang <laughs> um, monarchs. That's and, pretty cool. And you know that was a common experience. You know in in the seventies maybe, but you don't you don't you know that it, that was really a neat video just because you don't see that very often. <laughs> anymore at all for and you know for anybody listening if, if you want to see a site like that just shoot us a message on facebook or email jared wicklin on our on our uh, website i'll send you a picture and a video of that i mean it's absolutely incredible if you have not seen it uh, what, what's your email address jared j wickland w-i-k-l-u-n-d at pheasantsforever.org uh all right so the like i think the last piece we haven't really touched on um are the programs um, you know, during the Obama administration, uh, there was basically a directive that said, hey, we monarchs are in trouble, honeybees are in trouble, and we need to insert different uh, conservation practices within the USDA, particularly the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. Um, so there's all sorts of different habitat opportunities or conservation opportunities for landowners to enroll in quote-unquote pollinator habitat projects and and have it be um, part of this um, part of a federal program that exists what what's a landowner how does a landowner learn more about pollinator programs or practices from a usda perspective and or a state perspective well i think i think usda office is the place to go or, or talk to your wildlife biologist um, those folks can can help you out with pollinators. So, here's the main programs right now. Because the farm bill's a little befuddled right now, and there's not a lot of decisions done, but I think they're. I, I'm praying that there's some pollinator opportunities through CRP, which is our biggest program, mm-hmm. and and definitely out there. That 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 may or may not happen. Um, but what, what a lot of the guys or folks, our, our farm bill biologists are working on right now is EQIP, okay, which is another farm pro, federal farm program, which stands for Oh, environmental quality incentive. Thank probe. you, buddy. Incentives program. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, I'm not a botanist. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just no, I know. acronyms. No. Acronyms. No, that's 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 a good. That's been a good one. I mean, yeah. there, a lot of people have gotten in into that program. An interesting one that I just heard about is maybe look at CSP, the the Conservation Stewardship Program. Stewardship Program. Um, am I right? Is that still called CSP, or I thought they changed that name? But is that it? 
Yeah, it's. I believe it's. Yeah, anyhow, it's some in some states it's targeted, but I've had a couple people that have gone in and taken a few acres out, put it into pollinator, actually put some shrubs and um, and small trees in because they can be pollinators too, and have gotten a great payment and a great um, a great cost share through CSP. So that might be another thing to to check out and see if that's if that's a possibility. And then the, a lot of times there's local initiatives out there, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's even through uh, an, an egg company or, or, or even a co-op, or, you know, or having uh, little initiatives for, for pollinator sites. Isn't that, so it's, um, CRP, CP42, right? Yeah, that's, that's the, the conservation that's practice for specific it. specific to pollinators, and it's currently pretty fold up across the country, right? Yes, Yes, and, and that's what we'll see in this new farm bill, whether there's some acres available for that also. Right. There's also nothing to say that if you got into to a program and you sat down with the USDA and worked out a, a, a seeding that they were, you know, you'd probably have to pay for more of it out of your pocket, but you'd be able to maybe put something more diverse in parts of that mm-hmm. seeding than you would necessarily would normally, but there's there's the possibility of that. And I guess just for clarification, what you're talking about, the uncertainty around the farm bill, we did get a new farm bill at the end of 2018. It is past legislation. The uh, what, What's uncertain is we're waiting for the USDA to announce a new general sign-up and allow um, landowners to uh, offer acres into the program and then also at the end of every September is acres will expire and folks will have to renew and if they don't get renewed or they decide not to um, additional acres open up for landowners so uh, just because we we touched on CP42 might be at or near capacity in your state for the moment there will be opportunity for um, for additional acres Every year, really, you just need to be in touch with your USDA service center and uh, be ready to go once an acre uh, allotment opens up. Mm-hmm. How do folks uh, reach out to you, get in touch, and and learn more about uh, the seed mixes that we have avail- available at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? And then just beyond that, uh, prescribed burning, um, different things that uh, they might want to know about pollinator habitat. Yeah. Matt O'Connor, so um, the my email address is M-O-C-O-N-N-O-R at pheasantsforever.org. All one word, all lowercase, um, pretty easy. You can find it on the website. Um, we we have a seed program within Iowa, and if you're from Iowa and you want to, uh, you know, look into it or be interested in it, you can go to both our Iowa website, iowapf.net, and look for our seed programs. It's it, it's there, um, iowapf.net. Um, you can give me a call. My office phone is 563-926-2357, 563-926-2357. And Pheasants Forever has a, a, a nationwide uh, seed program, too, where you can go to the Habitat store and... What's the uh, what's that address? pfhabitatstore.org. There it is, pfhabitatstore.org. And Aaron Keel is our expert on uh, yes. states beyond Iowa. Yes. Yep. And that's A-K-U-E-H-L mm-hmm. at pheasantsforever.org. And, yeah. so, you know, anything in the Midwest, uh, some of those eastern states even going a little bit farther west, we've we've got, uh, you know, mixes mixes made up in all different ranges, economical. To, you can make a custom mix and go as big as you want, but... 
Um, we provide all those opportunities and, you know, um, we started this podcast talking about, or this whole podcast, I guess, talking about pollinator habitat. And, you know, since, since from 2012 through about June of 2018, um, you know, that's when pheasants forever and quail forever really started, uh, having inclusion of milkweeds in our mixes. And in that time, um, there was over 643 million milkweed seeds that were planted uh, inside of those mixes. And I know uh, Drew Larson, when he comes on for the next podcast, is, is really right. going to dive into that and the programs that that involves. But, um, you know, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever remain a leader uh, in, in pollinator pollinator habitat um, and, and putting that down on the landscape and, and getting out there and making every acre the best it can be. And it's uh, pollinator habitat's a wonderful thing. I use it on my property. A lot of our chapters are involved with it. And it's becoming a much bigger part of National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, right. uh, which is our big annual event. And it's it's just great to see people rallying around. Anything from private habitat to rights of ways to there's a lot of different uh, a lot of different avenues to include it on the landscape. And um, it's it's doing great things for for the birds and bees and all the other critters that love it. Well, and you know the thing that uh, always jumps out to me is the simplest component of it. It's beautiful. It is. I mean, it just, it, we talked about uh, pheasant habitat and wedding photos. You know, <laughs> uh, pollinator yeah. habitat serves so many purposes. It, it, we relate it to the, the web of life, you know, that analogy in so many different podcasts. Pollinator habitat can be the, the center of the bullseye of that web of life. It is the highest quality habitat that we can put on the ground, benefiting pheasants, quail, bees, butterflies, bats, you yep. know, all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, it seems like in our country these days we can't hit any we can't get anything right. <laughs> or it takes a long time. You know, the reason that this pollinator became important was because they realized that the cherry trees in Washington DC weren't getting pollinated. Hmm. And they weren't gonna live much longer. And you know, it's like, well, once they get hit upside the head with a two by four, they finally figure out what they need to do but that's a that's a noble thing i mean they they did do something about it yep washington responded and did some things to, to protect something important and i'm not going to know the number but you know it's in billions and billions of dollars of the importance of this to the agricultural community mm-hmm. and how important it is yep. and so you know our politicians responded and did something right um, agriculture's doing something and 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 buying into this and and realizing the importance of it and then it's just local people putting this out on the ground. So, you know, you know, above all, all this, up, up there at the 5,000-foot level, it's a pretty nice thing that's happened here in the country. And, and I, I can't believe when I drive through Iowa now and see these big yellow fields of gray-headed coneflower, you know, in, in early June. <laughs> it's like, where in the heck did this <laughs> stuff come from? It's just, you know, it, we think of not seeing just soybeans and corn, and, and all of a sudden there's these big fields of flowers that, People are wondering what the heck's wrong with these Iowans. They're losing it a little bit, but food, it's a great thing. Food production for for insects and humans is totally interlinked, and and that uh, that intersect is pollinator habitat. And I'm just glad we're we're a part of the conversation. I believe the statistic is one in three bites of food that you and I take as human beings needs pollination. Yeah, and if yeah. you think about a pheasant chick or a quail chick, it's probably every bite for the first few, <laughs> first few months they really rely on it right so it it, it does uh you know i remember uh, it's probably 
college years, Maslow's hierarchy of need. Do you remember this? <laughs> Food, water, right? Shoot, I don't know. <laughs> and and, and uh, pollinator habitat is, um, it, it is that center of the bullseye yeah. the, in the web of life, everything yeah. we need. And the great quality habitat we're trying to produce comes back to that, uh, that mix of beautiful flowers and, and grasses. Yeah, Einstein's got some crazy great quote about that too where you'd think what what's he thinking about bugs back then mm-hmm. and it's something about you know when the bugs are gone we're we're mm-hmm. three years out and we're gone you know it makes a lot of sense spooky. yeah yeah and i i think it's uh you know it, it's it's really a fun project to be involved with it's great to see the landowners see the success and feel good about it and and uh i hope we can keep keep moving forward with it Jared, Matt, thank you very much for uh, joining this episode of On the Wing. Thank you. Um, It's been a good discussion. Yeah, it's incredibly important um, for us as human beings, for us as hunters, knowing that uh, the pollinator habitat out there is creating birds. Um, It's incredibly important for for the role that we all care about here as conservationists. You want to learn more? Connect with Matt O'Connor, M. O'Connor, at pheasantsforever.org. Hit him up with an email, and um, you can touch base on different programs, different seed types, and uh, learn a little bit more about pollinator habitat. Thanks to, for listening to this episode of On the Wing with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Uh, stay tuned for a future episode where we'll talk with Drew Larson, who uh, also will be uh, talking about pollinator habitat, but we'll be tackling this subject from kind of an initiatives and events, all the events that we're doing with schools, um, uh, with the Z- Omaha Zoo, all sorts of different uh, programs that we have in place to engage uh, then another generation in our conservation mission through pollinator events. Stay tuned for that episode with Drew Larson in the future. Till then, get out there and uh, let's plant some pollinator habitat. Thanks for listening.